Section 15 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Craig Abbott. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh Mysterious Disappearances, Part 5 Charles and Martha Charles and Martha In the summer of 1870, Charles McCormick, the hero of this narrative, was 24 years of age, of good physique, being nearly six feet in height, weighing 180 pounds, and altogether a lusty specimen of the Green Mountain Boy. Early in the history of the late war, he enlisted as a private soldier in the 7th Regiment Vermont Volunteer Infantry, and, creditably serving out his full term of enlistment, obtained an honorable discharge. In 1867, he married a highly respectable young woman and, not long afterwards, opened a general insurance agency in Ogdensburg, St. Lawrence County, New York. With the companies he represented, his business relations were favorable, while his social standing was not questioned in the community where he had chosen his residence. Later developments showed him unworthy of the respect and confidence in which he was held at the date of a mysterious disappearance, an event which occurred on a hot summer afternoon in the month of August, 1870. His wife held a policy written upon his life by the Traveler's Insurance Company. The proofs of death submitted by her, in support of her claim for the principal sum insured, sufficiently explain the manner of his mysterious departure. According to the evidence thus submitted, the deposition of one H. A. Rockwell informs us that for several years last past, he has resided and now resides in the town of Messina, St. Lawrence County, New York, and that he knew Charles McCormick, late of Ogdensburg in said county, and last saw said McCormick at the residence of this deponent in Messina under the following circumstances. On the 19th day of August, 1870, said McCormick came to the residence of this deponent with a horse and buggy, and informed this deponent that he, the said McCormick, wished to leave his horse and buggy with this deponent, and to borrow this deponent's boat to go to Cornwall, across the St. Lawrence River in Canada, and would return it to deponent on the Saturday or Monday following. He declared his intention of proceeding from Cornwall, by rail, to Prescott, and from Prescott, by ferry, to Ogdensburg, and returned to Messina over the same route the Saturday or Monday following. That this deponent took charge of said horse and buggy, as requested by McCormick, to keep until his intended return, and let his, this deponent's boat, a skiff containing two oars, one paddle and a tow line, to said McCormick, to go with it to Cornwall. That, at the time aforesaid, 
and before McCormick left this deponent's residence, he informed this deponent that he, McCormick, had an engagement to keep at Ogdensburg and had promised to meet a person there from Canton, in said county, on business, and had sent word to said person that he, McCormick, would meet him at Canton on Saturday. That, in pursuit of such purpose and intention, as deponent believes, McCormick, with deponent's boat, oars, etc., as aforesaid stated, left deponent's residence to go to Cornwall at about the hour of six o'clock in the evening of said 19th day of August, and that deponent has not since seen nor heard of said McCormick. Deponent further says that on Monday, the 22nd of August, 1870, and after the time fixed for the return of the boat, deponent went to Cornwall to look after the same and found the said boat with only one oar and the tow line therein, about two rods below the wharf at Cornwall, where said boat was lodged against the shore and not tied or fastened, but lying as having been, apparently, blown or drifted to the shore by wind or current. And deponent further says, the usual route of ferriage from Messina to Cornwall, and that which McCormick proposed to take, is difficult, and to persons inexperienced, somewhat dangerous to navigate. And that the route from Messina to Ogdensburg, as proposed to be taken by McCormick, is frequently pursued by persons traveling from Messina to Ogdensburg, and is the only route by rail for any considerable part of the distance. Deponent further says that McCormick, in his attempted journey across the river, would not be likely to arrive at Cornwall, if successful in meeting no accident, until after dark on said 19th day of August, and that deponent has never found the oar and paddle missing from the boat. In the furtherance of these proofs, Mrs. McCormick, wife of the late Charles, and now his widow, subscribes to an affidavit of great length, wherein she gives a detailed account of her knowledge of her husband's usual business habits and of his movements during the three or four days immediately preceding his disappearance. She mentions the date of her marriage to McCormick and says that she resided with him continuously and happily as his wife thereafter. It appears that she and her husband were boarding in Ogdensburg with a Mrs. Kellogg, and that they left their boarding place to go to the residence of her father in an adjoining town where she intended to remain until her husband should rejoin her there on his return from one of his usual traveling tours and convey her thence to their home in Ogdensburg. On the following day, the 15th day of August, 1870, McCormick left her at her father's residence, driving away with his horse and buggy, having first declared his intention of going to the several villages mentioned by name in her affidavit. She further says she has not since seen nor heard from her husband, directly or indirectly, and has had no information of or concerning him, except that derived from her father and others who have been in pursuit of facts touching his fate. She states that she received one linen coat, one linen bosom, and one tape measure from her father on or about the 26th day of August, 1870, and that said articles in a small hand satchel and contents were the only articles taken away by the said Charles when she last saw him 
and that said satchel in whatever it may have contained has not been returned to her and has not been found to her knowledge and belief. In her affidavit, she further says McCormick left at their boarding place his entire personal wardrobe, not necessarily in use by him when she last saw him, which, together with the articles returned to her, and the horse, harness, and buggy used by McCormick, one cutter, bells, sleigh robe, and utensils, and articles used by him in taking care of his horse, and the furniture in the rooms occupied by herself and her husband at said Mrs. Kellogg's, constituted the entire personal property of the said Charles when she last saw him, and that he had no real estate at the time of his disappearance. We next have the affidavit of Mrs. McCormick's father, who corroborates the statements of Mrs. McCormick and of Mr. Rockwell, so far as his knowledge of the facts enables him to. This affiant further says that, early in the week following the 19th day of August, 1870, he was informed by telegram from Messina of the disappearance of the said Charles and of the finding of the boat mentioned in Rockwell's affidavit and that on the morning succeeding the receipt of telegram, he went to Messina, and from Messina to Cornwall, with said Rockwood, in search of the said Charles, and spent the remainder of the week in such search, without acquiring any knowledge or information of said Charles' whereabouts, or of his being alive or dead, that he, together with his son and Louis Rockwood, on Tuesday of the week following, proceeded to Messina and Cornwall and the vicinity to make further and complete search for said Charles and to ascertain what may have happened to him and made all examinations and inquiries believed to be effectual for the purpose of ascertaining such facts as could throw light upon the disappearance and whereabouts of said Charles, whether living or dead, and in the pursuit of such purpose visited the shores of islands of said St. Lawrence River for considerable distances, and made inquiries of persons living in such vicinity relative thereto, and pursued said river and vicinity in such search and inquiry as far as the city of Montreal and back, during an absence of seven or eight days. That he was informed and believes that said Charles was not seen on the Canadian side of the river on the said 19th day of August, 1870 by any person or persons who, in the ordinary cause of business and travel, would have seen him had he landed and pursued his way to Ogdensburg via Prescott, as stated in the affidavit of said Rockwood. That he was informed by the bridge tender who was present at and in attendance on the drawbridge that spans the Cornwall Canal, in the line of travel from the shore of the said river to Cornwall, that said Charles was well known to said bridge tender, and that said Charles did not cross said bridge on the 19th day of August, 1870, before or after dark. And he was also informed by the ticket agent of the Grand Trunk Railway that said Charles was not at Cornwall on said 19th day of August or afterward to his knowledge. He was also further informed by the driver of the omnibus running to the depot of said railway, and present there on the evening of said 19th day of August, that he was well acquainted with said Charles and saw nothing of him at the depot 
on the arrival of the train on its way to Prescott, and Defiant was informed by several persons in Cornwall, acquainted with said Charles, that nothing had been seen of him there, to their knowledge, on the day last aforesaid. And further, since receipt of the telegram, this affiant has spent more than three months and has expended in cash over $300 for the purpose of ascertaining the fate or whereabouts of said Charles without success. Mrs. Kellogg, with whom McCormick and his wife boarded in Ogdensburg, was produced and sworn in further support of the claim arising under the insurance policy. From this affidavit, it appears that Three days after leaving his wife at her father's residence, McCormick returned to Ogdensburg, making his appearance at Mrs. Kellogg's on the morning of the 18th of August. Mrs. Kellogg says he came with his horse and buggy, breakfasted with her, and then drove away to attend a funeral. Before leaving, he informed her that he had an engagement to meet a person from Canton on Friday morning, and would return to her residence with his wife on Friday or Saturday following. She further says that McCormick and wife boarded with her for about a year prior to and up to the time of his disappearance, and that during the period of her acquaintance with them, they lived agreeably and happily together. Upon the foregoing evidence, together with other circumstances of a corroborative character, Mrs. McCormick honestly believed her husband to be deceased and that the time and manner of his death were as clearly indicated as evidence of a purely presumptive nature could determine. This evidence was forwarded to the insurance company five months after the disappearance, and little doubt existed in the minds of the community at that time that Charles McCormick had been accidentally drowned. But the company already had had its suspicions awakened as to the genuineness of the drowning, and had instituted some inquiries which led to a belief that Charles was not lying in the cold embrace of the St. Lawrence. It was ascertained that when McCormick returned to his boarding place on the morning of the 18th of August, he donned his best clothes. True, he was going to a funeral, but he did not come back afterwards and exchange the suit. He attended the funeral, after which he loitered about until afternoon, when he left, saying he was going to Messina to make collections. On his way there, he was met by an acquaintance, who spent a while with him and had an opportunity to absorb that McCormick had a considerable sum of money in his possession. He spent the night in Messina, ostensibly at the hotel there, but it was known that he was at the house of a certain woman in that vicinity, sufficiently long to occasion comment by some uncharitable neighbors. The next morning, August 19th, he again called at the woman's house and bade the family goodbye. He spent the day in loafing about, and then, towards evening, drove to the house of Mr. Rockwood, where he left his horse and buggy and procured the boat as set forth in Rockwood's deposition. He had proposed to return to Ogdensburg by rail through Canada, when he might have driven back there as easily as he had driven from there the distance being about 30 miles. It was pretty certain, too, there was a woman in the case, and a woman not his wife. At this stage of the narration, we may introduce Martha, a comely young woman who had been deserted by her husband while living in a distant western state. As a grass widow, 
she had been successful, having lived an adventurous life and had accumulated money among the gamblers and speculators who followed the construction of the Pacific Railroad. Martha had a sister and other relatives residing in the small town of Governor, which is quite near the place where McCormick was last seen, and to this home, in her native village, Martha returned from her wanderings. She was living here at the time of McCormick's disappearance, and it was well known by certain persons that she and Charles had been on intimate relations. Martha's sister was a little piqued with the fact that such relations existed, as, prior to Martha's return home, Charles had been kindly attentive to herself. So the sister was inclined to talk with the special, who was in pursuit of knowledge under difficulties, and she remembered how Martha had told her, just before the happening of the drowning, that Charles was going to leave this little town and would keel up on the bottom of the St. Lawrence River in less than a week, after which he would go west and there let his mustache grow so that no one would know him. Furthermore, she had reason to believe that Martha had been in correspondence with Charles since his disappearance. She had seen and read part of a letter which Martha was then writing to Dear Charlie, dated September 9th, and the sister was sure that, up to the date of McCormick's disappearance, Martha had no correspondent by the name of Charlie. The village post office clerk remembered how Martha had wanted him to get an Ogdensburg newspaper of the next week for her. He did so, and when she called the next week for it, she directed his attention to an account in the paper of McCormick's accidental drowning. Martha's sister enlarged upon this fact and remembered that Martha brought the paper home and showing the account of the drowning said, Did I not tell you he was going to keel up on the bottom of the St. Lawrence River? Some weeks after McCormick's disappearance, after all excitement had subsided, Martha went west again. Exactly where she went or how she lived during the ensuing ten months is not fully known. As the matter thus stood, the insurance people believed that a demand to recover under the policy would not be urged against the company, and for a while nothing further was done to solve the mystery. The claim was supposed to have been virtually abandoned when, the following spring, the company's attention was again called to the matter by the legal advisor of Mrs. McCormick. There had been periodical rumors of the discovery of McCormick's body, and one of the reports, which seemed to call for an investigation at the hands of the insurance company, may be alluded to at this point. The skeleton of a man was found on the Canada shore in May 1871, and it was announced that these were the bones of the missing Charles. But an examination disclosed the fact that the bones were those of an elderly person, which fact the numerous gray hairs found upon the skull fully confirmed. Charles had never seen one-half the number of winners that had passed over the head of this skeleton. It was observed that these remains were clothed in a heavy, thick, woolen suit, over which was a heavy broadcloth overcoat, closely buttoned up, indicating wintry weather at the time this person perished. Whereas McCormick disappeared in August, upon one of the warmest days of that particularly warm month. About this time, the latter part of May 1871, some new facts came to the knowledge of the insurance company, 
which had the tendency to divert attention from the information which had been obtained from Martha's relatives. As the facts herein alluded to came to the company confidentially, and with the request that the particulars as to how they were obtained should not be divulged, we are unable to publish that which would otherwise be an interesting feature of this story. It will have to suffice our present purpose to say that there existed good reasons for believing that the missing Charles was then in Girard, Kansas, or somewhere in that vicinity, within the knowledge of one Henry E. Perkins, a resident of that place. Upon inquiry, it was ascertained that this Perkins had been an army comrade of McCormick, they having enlisted in the same regiment and company, where they served and messed together nearly four years. It was decided to send an experienced agent of the insurance company to Gerard for further developments. Accordingly, a pro-tem detective made his appearance, incognito, in Gerard, towards the latter part of June, and at once entered upon his task. Some two or three weeks were spent in a fruitless search, during which time an acquaintance with Perkins was formed, but only to learn nothing satisfactory concerning the missing McCormick. Perkins finally suspected the purpose of the agent's visit to Gerard, and thereupon, seeking a private interview, unbosomed his suspicions and made known his entire ignorance and innocence of the matter. He feelingly expressed his willingness to furnish any and every aid or assistance in his power which would lead to the discovery of McCormick, if living. Whether Perkins' statements were true or false, it was now clear that nothing further was to be accomplished in that direction. The agent, therefore, returned eastward at once and then took up the threads which linked the name of Charles with the now-missing Martha. His first effort was to find the whereabouts of Martha. She was traced to Chicago and believed to be in that city. It took several weeks to trace her exact locality, but this was finally accomplished through letters addressed to her by a third party with whom she was acquainted. It was ascertained that she was keeping a cigar store in the city, and the detective soon found it convenient to buy his tobacco of her. In due time, an interview with her led to an agreement on her part to furnish the company's agent with satisfactory and conclusive proof that Charles was not dead, but now living. She said he was living under an assumed name, but was not then residing with her, nor in Chicago. Finally, upon terms agreed upon between herself and the agent, she placed in the latter's hands four letters, dated respectively, August 23, 1870, September 6, 1870, October 24, 1870, and November 10, 1870. Accompanying these letters is Martha's statement, written by herself in a neat, business-like hand, from which we copy the following extract. These letters were written by Charles McCormick, formerly of Ogdensburg, New York. The first three reached me at Governor, New York, and the last named at Adams House, Chicago. I have had no correspondence with him since the last letter herein named. The assumed name of C.H. Mack was understood between us before his disappearance from home in August 1870. This statement, signed by Martha's full name, is dated 
Chicago, August 25, 1871, a little more than one year subsequent to McCormick's disappearance. The first of these letters was written five days after his disappearance, at a time when his worthy father-in-law was examining the shores of the islands in the St. Lawrence River in search of the body of the said Charles. It was received by Martha while at her home in Governor, New York, where she then was, and to which she replied by mail in accordance with pre-existing arrangements. This verifies the statements made by her sister concerning this alleged correspondence. The following is a verbatim copy. Omoro, Wisconsin, August 23, 1870. My dear Maddie, I arrived at this place yesterday. I can't say as yet how long I may stay here, but think I will leave tomorrow morning. Now, dear, I can't write much, not but that my desire is good enough, but you know I am in rather a sad plight. I wish you were here, that you could be a source of comfort. You know I am of a lonely nature if left alone. You asked me to write you plainly. I will try to do so, and in a very few words. I want you to join me at the earliest opportunity. Now, I may not be able to send for you as soon as I would like, but believe me, Maddie, I will use every effort to advance the project. I want you to write me before you sleep after getting this address. C.H. Mack, Nina, Winnebago County, Wisconsin. My love to you, sweet one. Write me plainly so I may understand you. C.H. Mack. P.S. Wednesday, 3 o'clock p.m. Send your letters to Oshkosh, Winnebago County, Wisconsin. P.O. Box number 318. A kiss from C.H. M. The second letter, written soon afterwards, reads as follows. Oshkosh, Wisconsin, September 6, 1870. Dear friend, your kind note is at hand. I am pleased to learn that you are disposed to favor my proposal. Now, Maddie, remember that I am placed in a very peculiar situation. I have reason to believe that the people think I am gone up, or down, really. I can't say which, and it now remains with you to say whether they shall so continue to think or not. For God's sake, Maddie, as you value a true friend, do not indicate by either word, look, gesture, or action that you know or even think of me. I am not fearful, Maddie, that you would knowingly divulge anything which would injure me. Always remember, dear, that I am and will be a friend, even though you should conclude in the future to discard me. Do not think I make the statement with a view to get your favor. My past life I believe to be one of honor towards a friend, and I fail to remember a case where I have ever deceived one. I hope to receive a good long letter from you ere Saturday eve. I am as yet unsettled as regards my future prospect of business. I am to remain here one month yet, and then I will very likely know something further. I am well, and for aught I know, happy. But you must write me often if you wish to keep me so. Darling, do not make a confidant of anyone 
not even frank, and at some future day I will repay you for your constancy. Hoping you are enjoying life, I remain yours, truly and ever, C.H. Mack, Box 318. The third letter is as follows. Janesville, Wisconsin, October 24, 1870. Darling Maddie, I have but just received yours of September 9th and am now in doubt as to your being in governor. It was in consequence of my changing my P.O. address that your kind note did not reach me until so late a date. Hoping you will pardon me for this, I promise better hereafter. Should have written, but as I ordered all letters to be forwarded and received none, I feared you did not write. Forgive my doubting and write me at this place. In haste, C.H.M. The fourth letter, which was directed to and received at the Adams House, Chicago, is as follows. Janesville, Wisconsin, November 10, 1870. My dear Maddie, your dear note was duly received, am pleased with results, and trust they may continue favorable, yet I assure you, everything has not worked so smoothly here. I had to leave Oshkosh because of a person being there whom I knew. He, however, did not see me. In looking the directory over, I saw his name, and on inquiry learned he was the man whom I knew, a lawyer, and I, knowing we would surely meet, had to get up and get. I am sorry to say the change has not been a good one for me. I had a good situation at that place, but it is not so here. Therefore, I am at present writing my last from this place, have my ticket in my pocket, and will leave tomorrow morning for Kansas. I do not know as yet in what part I will locate, but am going to Leavenworth. I am sorry it is so, Maddie, but I cannot help it. I have not much money, though I have not gambled, as you heard. I deny the charge, excepting in one instance to the amount of $12. I say I regret having to leave here so soon, as I wished you to join me before I moved, but my means will not allow me to wait. I must get into something soon. Oh, Maddie. It is hard when I think how poor I am, and consider my situation. And then when I remember what you said about money matters, it makes it still harder. Do you remember? It was at Frank's. It was this, that you did not care for a man unless he had money. I know, dear, you did not mean all this, did you? At least I will try and hope not. How I would like to call in and take tea with you this evening. Or, rather, I would prefer to have you take tea with me. But as we cannot have that pleasure, let us hope for the time to hasten when we may be allowed even more. A loving kiss. Be cautious, my own darling, that you do not by word, action, or look give them to understand that you know where I am. But I need not caution you. However, you know Frank is sharp, and will guess more than half. But I must close, as it is near train time, and I have to go out about five miles to another station tonight, and return ready to leave in the morning. 
I wish I could send my love to Jenny, but it would not do. I am, as ever, yours truly, C.H. Mack. According to Martha's verbal statement, she and Charles had separated, and although he had gone back to Janesville, Wisconsin, it was her belief that he was about leaving that place, even if he had not already gone. Without unnecessary delay, the agent pushed on to that city for the purpose of securing a personal interview with McCormick, or, failing in that, to identify him with C.H. Mack by means of his photograph, of which the agent had copies. On inquiry at the post office in Janesville, it was ascertained that C.H. Mack had a box there, that he took a weekly newspaper through the same, that at times he came in person to the post office and at other times sent for his mail, and that he was sometimes seen in the company with a family living some five or six miles from town. Finally, the hunt was narrowed down closely, and on the 30th day of August, 1871, the agent came upon the long-lost Charles and identified him through his resemblance to the photograph when he at last acknowledged his real name and subscribed to a statement from which we make the following extract. I learn that a claim has been made out under the policy in your company, the claimant representing that I am dead, and I hereby beg to inform you that the claim is not yet good as I am living and in fair health. Charles McCormick. During this interview of the agent with McCormick, it was ascertained that the latter had been in correspondence with Perkins and had recently written him over his assumed name of C.H. Mack. A few weeks subsequent to this discovery of McCormick, the following letter from him was received at the office of the insurance company. Kansas City, Missouri, October 9, 1871. Secretary of Travelers Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Sir, having seen one of your general agents and given him a certificate of my being alive, I feel it a duty to myself to give a statement of the causes and feelings with which I left Ogdensburg, thereby causing a claim to be made for the insurance on my life. First, I was indebted to the Agricultural Fire Insurance Company, Watertown, New York and they wrote my surety that they would hold him for my indebtedness, that they having before this told me in person that they would not hurry me. I thought then, as I believe now, that had they let me alone, I could have paid all my liabilities in a short time. True, this is no good reason for me to base a justification of my actions, yet this, in connection with the high estimate in which I held my surety, and a knowledge of the trust he had placed in me, with a sense of the mortification it would cause me to have the matter made public, worked on my mind to so great an extent as to entirely unfit me for business. There was, as you undoubtedly know, having investigated the matter, other reasons which I need not mention. Suffice to say that I truly regret the action, but, sir, I assure you that I had not then nor have I now, a wish to wrong any person or persons, and I am resolved, providence permitting, to refund any money which may have been advanced to or for me, feeling that to write more would be only a rehearsal of matter which you understand, I will close, 
Hoping this may meet your favorable consideration, I remain, etc. Charles McCormick. P.S. I have heard that a statement was made to the effect that I had a large amount of money when I left. I deny and can prove this to be false. Please address Charles McCormick, care of Henry E. Perkins, Gerard, Kansas. For what we know, Charles still luxuriates out west, and mayhap the false and fickle Martha, who sold the secret of his hiding place, regardless of Charles' despairing love letters, has rejoined her lover since her cigar shop was burned with 20,000 other shops and dwellings on that lurid night of the Great Fire. This little affair cost the insurance company a deal of trouble and considerable expense, all on account of Charles's foolish infatuation for Martha. End of section 15